Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Happy September. Happy. (laughs) Yay. How many of you went back to school already? Anybody? Any students go back to school? Yeah. How many of you for going back to school? It meant you are in your room on a computer. Anybody? No, I'm just kidding. We have some people that are like that. It's an odd time of year that we are in. Our season is crazy weird right now. Um, But I want to welcome you to Bridge this morning. It is September 6th. Uh, we are already in, I can't believe we're already in September. I uh, woke up this morning, went outside, and you know that, that feeling where in the summertime you go outside in the morning and it's just sweltering? Well, it's not like that anymore. You go outside this morning and it was cool and there was a little bit of dew on the grass and it just reminded me that fall was right around the corner and I love that time of year. So encouraged. Um, I'm glad that we can turn that corner. I'm hoping and praying that as we're turning that corner of seasons that the season that we've been in for the last number of months also is turning a corner. Um, that would be wonderful. You know, depending on who you talk to, they say it's all going to change after Election Day, but I'm not going to go down there this morning because that's not the point of us being here today. Uh, but we are going to talk about some important things today. And if you uh, have your Bibles with you, um, I'm going to ask you, you can turn to the book of Acts this morning with me, Acts chapter 2. Uh, but we are going to jump around to a few different places this morning. But Acts 2 is kind of the main place that we're going to start at today. And it's kind of the, it's the thrust of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, Acts chapter 2. And while you're turning there, um, I just want to first take a step back and tell you what we're going to be talking about. We are pausing right now uh, for a few weeks. We just finished up our summer series um, that we finished up called uh, You Asked For It, and Pastor Rob wrapped it up last week talking about um, unanswered prayer. And, uh, and we just had a great opportunity to really talk this summer through some really difficult subjects. We were not able to get through every one of the subjects and the topics that came in, uh, but we hit the ones that we thought we were going to be able to do justice to uh, in one message. Some of the subjects that came in were very detailed and very good questions, but something we would have to do more in a class environment or in a mini-series. Uh, so um, thank you for being a part of that. I hope that that was beneficial for you guys over the last couple of months. Um, we're taking another couple of weeks here and just doing some one-off messages. I like to call that uh, that the series title is Whatever the Speaker Feels Like Speaking About. Um, so that's what we're doing for the next couple of weeks. Um, this week, uh, we're going to do something different than next week, and then we have our picnic, which is a, an invitation for everybody. Uh, whether out. Listen, if you've not been coming to Bridge on a Sunday morning, we hope that you're coming to our picnic on the 20th. It's outdoors. Um, we're using the full facility outside, both big grassy green areas. It's going to be a great time for people to spread out, have some fun. And uh, if we sign a petition, if we get enough signatures, we might actually do a real live axe throwing for Pastor Matt. Okay, so we'll see how that works. Just, just kidding, just kidding. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, but anyway, um, we're in Acts chapter 2, and this morning's message is called Seeing the Church with 2020 Vision. Seeing the Church with 2020 Vision. Um, if you know anything about vision, you know when you go to an eye doctor, they put the little screen in front of you, and they cover up one of your eyes, and then they cover the other eye, and they want you to read the little letters that are across the screen, the little eye chart that they put in front of you. And as you get closer and closer to the bottom, the, the, the words get, or the numbers and the, and the letters, I'm sorry, get smaller and smaller and smaller until they get to 2020. And you can go lower than that, but the goal is for the eye doctor to determine whether you can see clearly at 2020. 2020, by definition, is considered perfect vision. So the message this morning we're going to be talking about Um, interestingly so that the coincidence is that it's in the year 2020, uh, is that we are going to be looking at the church and trying to see the church today with perfect vision, with 2020 vision. Now, you can't see anything and I can't see anything perfectly on our own. The only one that sees things perfectly is God Almighty. Jesus Christ sees things things perfectly, so the way we're going to look at that this morning, and we're going to try to look at that, is through Scripture, look at what God's Word says about this very topic, and then walk through the implications of that. So if I asked you the question this morning, what image comes to mind, or what image would you choose to describe the church today, I wonder what type of responses we would get. What image would you say accurately describes the church. Now, I think the answer to that has a lot to do with who's answering the question. If you are an atheist, if you're an unbeliever, your response to that question may simply look just like a church building. What does the church look like? It looks like a building. And maybe what they mean by that possibly is that the church is really just an organization created by man, for man, to give us some type of hope in something that's greater than ourselves. People believe that. 
that when they talk about the church, if they're an atheist or they're an unbeliever, they don't follow Christianity, they might say, well, the church is really just a building and it's an organization that was created by man for man. If you're not an atheist or an unbeliever, maybe you're a skeptic or you're a cynic. And what they would say maybe is that when they see the church, the image they would use is maybe a mask. Maybe they would use this mask. (laughs) And they'd say the church is just a place of masks. And you know, growing up in the church, how many times have I heard people say that over the years? People come to the church and they're all just wearing masks. I mean, how prophetic is that today? You know, but it's like everyone's just wearing masks, you know, all over the place. And what they mean by that is they're speaking to hypocrisy. When people talk about mask wearing, they're saying what people claim they believe is not how they're living. So they come through the doors and they acknowledge Jesus maybe with their lips, but they deny him with their actions when they go outside the doors of the church. So if someone looks at the church through an eye of skepticism or cynicism, they will maybe say a mask represents what the church looks like. Maybe you're neither one of those. Maybe you're just a religious person, and and I'm not referring to religion in a good way. I'm saying someone that maybe comes to church periodically throughout the year, and maybe for you it might be... um, it might be a clipboard with little check boxes that you would put on it. You have a little check box. I attend church. It's Easter. I went to church. It was Christmas. I went to church. Um, some cool thing happened during the holiday or something happened over a major holiday or I had a family member that was getting dead dedicated or a christening and I went to church. And for you, if that's who you are, church is just something that you do in addition to your life as part of tradition. That you come a few times a year, you check a box, you hear a message, and then you go about building your life and and living your life. Some people legitimately see church that way. And then there's the fourth group of people that I like to call the faithful, um, the people that are looking at it through a biblical lens. And I'm not saying you're in any one of those groups. I don't know where everyone is, but I know that each one of those groups looks at the church very differently. The faithful have a very different picture of church. And instead of looking at it through our understanding, we need to look at it through Jesus' understanding. We need to look at what the church looks like with 2020 vision that comes from Scripture because Jesus is the only one that can actually be perfect in his vision. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, and I want to give just a brief background as to what we're looking at before I read this, before we see what the church looked like according to Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 2 is what a lot of people believe the Bible shows us is the birthplace of the church. The church that we know today, the modern church, I could say the New Testament church, Acts chapter 2 is the birthplace. So a little background here is when Jesus was crucified, after Jesus died, after he was buried, after he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven. Before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples that they were supposed to go to Jerusalem and they were supposed to wait for the promise of the Father. And what he was referring to was the Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come and would empower the church. And he said this in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I have this for you. He says, on one occasion, this is after Jesus' resurrection, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with my Holy Spirit. Now, this is so important for us to remember because it's important for us to understand that the birth of of the Christian church began with the baptism or the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The birthplace of the church began with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And it's for this reason, and I'm sharing this because the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. He is, as uh, the Bible says in John, he is our counselor. He is our power source. He gives peace. He gives courage. He gives boldness. He convicts us of our sin. He strengthens us when we're weak. The presence of God is given to believers in the book of Acts. He dwells in the heart of all who lives, all who believes, and he is the one that empowers us to accomplish the work of God. And I'm sharing that with you first because it's important for us to know that all of the work that God's doing in the church does not originate from you or me. All of the work that God is doing through the church is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, through the church. Okay, that's important for us to understand, and maybe you you know that and you just glance over that for a moment, but it's important for you and I to understand this morning, we don't do anything. I can't do anything. In John 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
okay? Nothing. Anything that's of significance, anything that's spiritual, that's eternal, mankind cannot accomplish on our own, which means the birthplace of the church is directly connected with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for God's mission moving forward. And that's important for you and I to remember, and we'll get back to that in a little bit, why this is so important. Because after this happens, in Acts chapter 2, after they receive the Holy Spirit, after God fills them with his power, we see examples of what starts to happen. The Holy Spirit shows up and the scripture says they're overwhelmed with what happens. They begin speaking the praises of God in foreign languages. People were there in Jerusalem from all over the world celebrating the Passover and they were hearing the praises of God being declared in their own tongues, in their own foreign languages. The good news of Jesus was being shared. They were preaching with an authority and a passion. When Peter stood up and he preached to all of those people and he taught of the good news of God and who Jesus really was, the scripture says that after he spoke to them, it says that the people were cut to the heart. Peter, a man who denied Jesus three times, who ran and hid, who was afraid when Jesus was arrested, stood up in boldness and he spoke to these people and they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? They were emotionally disturbed and affected by his words. Peter's words in response, repent, turn of your ways, be baptized. What he was saying was, believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, make him the Lord of your life, follow him and you will receive eternal life. And the scripture says, as a result of that message, 3,000 people came to salvation that day. Isn't that a great story? Could you imagine being somewhere where you could actually go somewhere and you could speak to people that don't know Christ and, and, and with one message, 3,000 people responded. I mean, that's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. The power was not in Peter because of Peter. The power was in Peter because of the Holy Spirit. And it's important for you and I to remember that the New Testament church began with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So hold that thought, because now we need to get into what did it really look like? Because we understand the foundation has to come from the Holy Spirit, but there are four things that we see in Acts that I believe are characteristics that made up the church, and they begin in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And look what, look what Luke writes when he talks about the New Testament church. They, he says, the New Testament church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Just stop there for a moment. Just stop just for a moment and think about that verse. All of the believers were together, Right? and had everything in common. You see, where God's spirit dwells, unity is. Where God's spirit dwells, there is unity. Where there is disunity, there is no God's, God's spirit is not working. When there is disunity and division and isolation, the spirit is not working. But when God's spirit begins to move, unity happens. You see that historically all through from the birth of the church to the present in our own fellowship. In the assemblies of God, you go back to the early 20th century when this fellowship was birthed. There was a renewal that came from the power of God's Holy Spirit. And you know what was one of the most beautiful things? People could camp on and say what was beautiful about it is, you know, there was a restoration back to the first century church and people spoke in different tongues. I don't even want to go there. That's wonderful. But you know what I really get excited about? That people came together from different denominations, different races, different cultures, different beliefs. You could be black, white, Indian. You could have been um, in the faith for all your life, brand new. You could have been rich. You could have been poor. It didn't matter. Everybody came together as a melting pot and they worshiped the same God. That's what I was the most excited about when you look at the history of what God does through the message of Pentecost and through the message of the Holy Spirit coming and filling. Yes, the manifestations and the giftings were there, but the giftings weren't what we're focusing on. The fruit is what we're focusing on. And what we're focusing on and what we should be seeing in today's church like we saw 2,000 years ago is all the believers were together and they had everything in common. What does it mean? They were like-minded. It doesn't mean everybody was the same, but we had the same mission. We had the same purpose. We had the same plan. We had the same drive, the same direction. We had the same goal. And what was the goal? To make Jesus known to the world. 
and to do it in unity in the midst of our diversity. Look at verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As I said, we're going to look at four individual characteristics this morning that help us see the church with 2020 vision. We find them in verse 42. Acts 2.42 said they devoted themselves, look again, they devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread and to prayer. What should the church look like in 2020? The first thing we're going to look at this morning is devotion to the apostles' teaching. If we really want to see a clear picture of what the church needs to look like today, we need to go back to the beginning. And we need to remember that one of the number one things, though this was not in order from most important to least important, one of the four major things they devoted themselves to, motivated by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit, was devotion to the apostles' teaching. Now, what does that mean? It means exactly what you think it means. It means they were actually, the devotion to the apostles' teaching actually means it's the act and the content of teaching. They were being schooled. And I don't mean in a bad way. Some of the social media posts you see with people arguing, this person schools this person, and the goal is to you know, berate someone. No, they were being taught as students, and they were listening to the words of the, of the apostles as they were not teaching their own opinions and thoughts. They were teaching the word of God. How do we know that's what they taught? In Acts chapter 6. If we forwarded to Acts chapter 6, we would see that when the apostles began the ministry and the church began to grow, that we see that there was a tension that began to ensue between different Jewish believers over whether they were all getting equal distribution of the food that was was available at that point. And they were saying, well, these Jews are actually getting more food than these Jews, and the apostles were responsible for distributing at that point, and finally they stopped and they went, time out. Time out. Chapter 6, verse 2. They said, the 12 apostles gathered all the disciples together, and this is what they said. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention, look, to prayer and the ministry of the word. What did the New Testament church do? What were they devoted to? The apostles' teaching. And what was the apostles' teaching? Ministry of the word of God. The church today, to be a healthy church and to see with perfect vision, needs to be committed to understanding, reading, and understanding and applying the word of God in our lives today. They were committed to it then. We need to be committed to it today. Yes, when you look at Scripture, when you talk about what's happening in this world, we understand God speaks to us in many different ways. God speaks to us through other people. He speaks to us through circumstances. He speaks to us through prayer. All of those things are true, and I can give you examples of all of those things over my life, how God speaks in all of those different ways. But if I can be honest, what I'm concerned about in this culture and in this climate is that sometimes we put so much emphasis on God speaking to us through all of these other ways that we neglect the significance of God's word. Okay? You hear what I'm saying? This is important. So, so it doesn't matter. Well, what, is, what does my friend think about this? And what, is, what does my brother think about this? What does my father think about this? This is good to consult wisdom, people that are wise. Scripture talks about plans fail for the lack of counsel. We should be speaking to people that love God and are willing to speak into our lives. Or sometimes though we take a step back and we, we just kind of lose ourselves in this ethereal idea that, you know, I'm just going to walk and, and wait until the Holy Spirit just drops it in my heart. Does the Holy Spirit do that for us? Of course he does. Does God speak to us in the still small voice? When does he do it to me? When I cut the grass. When I mow my lawn, I hear God speak to me more clearly than probably every other time. You know, that doesn't mean I want to go cut everyone's grass so I can hear God all the time. But I, I honestly, I do. I, I find myself looking forward to it where I can cut the grass and I start listening to things and I'm just paying attention to what's, I'm not, it's, it's a mindless kind of a job. You know what I'm talking about? 
I mean, as long as I get the line straight, because my son has a very particular way in how he wants the grass cut, so I'm trying to, to, to model his model, you know, and take pictures of it and send it to him in South Carolina. Look, your dad, I'm making you proud, son. Look what I'm doing. You know, because in the summertime, it's his job. But, but now I'm doing this job, and I'm reminded so often through that time that my mind can go clean. And the Holy Spirit does speak to me about things. God does speak to me. But can I tell you, that is not a replacement for his word. The Holy Spirit will speak to us, but you know what he's going to do? He's going to confirm what we already know. He's going to show us and speak to us in directions about things that maybe we are unaware of, but it will never contradict his word. And many times I hear people in this culture say things like, I just don't hear God or I don't know what God's saying. And many times, consistently, what I've seen over the years, many times, The pattern I consistently see is that people that struggle with hearing the voice of God many times are not consistently reading the Bible, not just to read it, but reading it to understand it. There is a difference. Remember when Jesus met with the Pharisees? You know, historically, the Pharisees would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. So they didn't have to go to temple or tabernacle and read They didn't have to go to synagogue and read from the scrolls. They could just recite the word because they had it memorized. Yet Jesus said, you know the word, but you can't even see me. You don't even know God, but you know the word. So it's not just about reading the scripture. It's about reading the scripture and allowing the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life. Lifeway Lifeway Research did a study. And they said 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than one time a week. 45%. 40% read maybe one to two times a month, and one in five churchgoers say they never read the Bible. So I take those statistics and I take a step back and I say, we understand in the physical world, if we want to be excellent at something, you know, we went on a college trip just this past week and I was listening to one of the professors talk to us there, talking about the percentage of people that are professors at the college that have terminal degrees, Okay. Terminal degrees. It means they can't go any further in their field of study. They've gotten the highest degree that their field of study would have. You can't get to that position in this world without dedication, study, late night hours, early morning days of study, paper after paper after paper, dissertations, all of, and a ton of money that goes into that. For them to get to the place, right? Some of you amen that, right? You can't get to that place without incredible amounts of application devotion, and practice. So why does it seem sometimes when we wrestle with spirituality, maybe sometimes it comes down to the fact that the devotion that we have in the real practical world is not the same level of devotion we are demonstrating in the spiritual world. You know, I've I've done this. I'm guilty of this. I'm not speaking to you. I'm with you. How many times over the years in different places I've been at, or I've gone to altars, or I've asked God, Lord, just speak to me. God, talk to me. Help me get through this situation. And so many times, it's not that God isn't speaking. It's that I'm not obeying. So many times, and that's not saying it's a formula, that it's always the same thing, but many times, many times I'm seeking and I'm looking, and God says, well, the answer to your problem, Paul, is not in me just coming down in this moment and fixing it. The answer is, I want you to deepen your relationship with me. I want you to get more in the word. Lord, I struggle with the situation. What does my word say about that, Paul? What does my word say about that? Well, I don't know. Go find out. Go find out what my word says about it. There's something very powerful when you open this book and you remind yourself that it's not just words on a page, but it's the inspired word of God when planted in your heart can transform you forever. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, he said, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired. People have said, well, the Bible was written by a bunch of men. No, the Bible was penned by a bunch of men in their personalities as they wrote, inspired by the Spirit of God. There's a difference. There's a difference. That's why some of the books that people wrote over the years never made it into the canon. Because the church fathers looked at it and said, that is not in conjunction and, and, and doesn't talk about the character of God as we see. But now you look back and see 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, and it tells one consistent story. 
Prophecies that come, place, come to, to pass hundreds of years after they were ever written where the writer could never have influenced the outcome. Yet the outcome still identifies and, and parallels with what the writer said hundreds of, years, hundreds of years before. The Bible is the inspired word of God. He says, it is God-breathed. And look what Paul says. It's God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is he saying in that? It's good for teaching. And what does teaching mean? It means teaching truth. It means telling us and showing us what is right. I go to God's word to understand truth and to understand what is right. Where do we go for truth today? Just look around at culture. Truth is whatever people say it is now. Am I wrong or am I wrong? No, I'm not wrong. I'm right. Truth is whatever people say. My truth can be different than your truth. Well, where, do you, where does that go? Just unpack that at some point. It doesn't matter what truth looks like as long as it matters to me. Scripture teaches us what truth is, and it's supposed to be our foundation to understand that. That requires us to be humble. Because what that means is that God's truth is what matters. And even though my opinion and my thoughts may differ than that, as I'm growing closer to him, he shows me why the architect of the universe knows better than me. Because he's God and I'm not God. He teaches us what's right. Rebuking, Paul says. What does that mean? It means teaching us what's not right. No one likes to walk up to someone's face if they're actually a humble person that wants to see restoration in someone's life and enjoys going up to someone's face and saying, bro, you are messed up wrong. You shouldn't do that anyway. But no one likes to confront. No one really likes to confront with the perspective to say, hey, this is wrong, and I'm just going to, I love telling you that it's wrong, and I love conflict, and I love just being in conflict and tension with you. People don't like to do that. But you know what God's word says? The word of God is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching us what's wrong. You know how many times over the years I've said things that I see in Scripture, and people get angry at me for it? A lot. Oh, I don't like that. Pastor Paul, you shouldn't say that. Now, I'll be honest. There are some things that I have said at different times where I say it more in the flesh than I should say it in the spirit. I will confess that because I'm human. And there are some things that I get passionate about that I say, I don't just say the truth, but I say the truth with a little bit more of a human emphasis on it. People don't like that part. But can I tell you, even the times sometimes when you bring it in truth, people resist it, they get angry at it. But you know what I've had to learn over the years? And this is a hard thing because I don't want to offend people and I don't want to not be a people pleaser. God reminded me a long time ago. The same way when Israel looked for a king and Samuel threw his hands up and said, I can't believe what they're doing. They're rejecting all of this. They're rejecting me as a priest. And he's like, no, no, no. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And it's the same thing with this. When truth is presented with the motivation and the goal to teach you what's not right, you can get angry at me. You can get offended at me. If someone else brings it to you, you can get offended at them. But you know what? You're not really offending. You're not really being angry at them or me. You're being angry at God. You're offended at what God says. I'm offended at what God says when I see something. And it's, it's interesting for me that it says, okay, I have more freedom if I do it motivated in love to speak truth and know that if someone disagrees with me, they may not like what I'm saying, but it's not really them being angry at me. Ultimately, they're being angry at what God's word really says. So the Bible teaches us truth, what's right, rebuking, what is wrong. Correcting is when you're wrong, how to get right again. That's what correcting is. You know, you're in school and you write a paper and you get it back and it has all these red marks on it. What was the teacher doing? Correcting you. Why? So that you can be better. So you can get better. So your grades can increase. So you can do the right thing. And that's exactly what God's word shows us, that the word of God is not just about right. It's not just about wrong. It's about helping us get right when we are wrong. And then the last part here is training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Once we know what right and wrong is, once we are on the track of being right again, how do we stay there and continue to grow closer to God each and every day? That's why God's word is so important. That's why it's necessary for us to stay devoted to God's word, and to the apostles' teaching, which was the ministry of the word of God. Number two, the second thing we're looking at this morning, how we see the church and what should the Christian church look like, is fellowship. 
fellowship. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't really know what this word meant. I mean, I was in a high school uh, youth group, and I always thought fellowship was food and volleyball. (laughs) Because in our youth ministry, they said we'd have fellowship together, and there was always a volleyball net, and there was always a lot of food. So I was like, all right, so we're going to have food together, and we're going to play volleyball. And from my mind, I always, even to this day, when someone say fellowship, I picture a volleyball net in my mind for some reason. Because that's what it was to me. It was fellowship. But, But it's so much more than volleyball. You know, it's, it's soccer too, you know, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. The word fellowship is koinonia that we see in the old, in the new Testament in Greek. And it means the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate group. Okay. I'm going to say it again. It means the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate group. Okay. It is commonly used in reference to the church, but also with regard to marriage. Koinonia, an intimate activity, sharing of activities where two become one. It's used in that context. Fellowship is not just about doing things together. It's about going from individuals to becoming one. Fellowship in the scriptures that they were devoted to was about their individual identities being melded together to become one body. You see, when you talk about the scriptures and you look at what it looks like, we're not talking about a physical body, but the apostle Paul talks many times about this through his epistles. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he refers to this in 12 and 13. He says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. What is he saying there? He's teaching us something that maybe we wouldn't know. The church in Corinth certainly didn't know it because he was rebuking them for a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have been doing. But what he was reminding them, and it should be reminded us as well, is that true fellowship, according to God's plan for the church, means that what we were once doing individually takes a second seat to us now being one body. Many parts, many differences, many gifts, but one body. Paul talks about one body, that we all are under one mind, which is Christ, that we all have the same spirit in us, that we all have the same mission together, and that the church is intended to serve as one unified body with different strengths, abilities, and giftings. Now take a step back and think about that today. In our world that we live in today, it is becoming more and more difficult for us to consider what it looks like to be a unified body. And it's easier for us to become divided. It's easier for the church to become individualistic, to become isolated, especially where we are right now in our climate, in this country and in the world separating, separating. That's why a few weeks ago I talked about the church and the importance of the church gathering because it's necessary for us to continue, for us to grow in unity. God created us as one body and just like my body has multiple parts, I can't sever a part of my body off of itself and expect it to live. Each part of my body has a part and a mission and a purpose And God put them all together for that purpose. And just like the church is wired, we all sit under the head of Christ. So we're supposed to fellowship with one another in unity. True fellowship then involves staying connected to each other. Can I ask you, are you being connected to people? Are you staying connected with people, especially during this season? Because the church is a body, and if you're isolated, you are not being connected. Are you living in partnership with each other during this time? There's something very beautiful about fellowship, God's way, where we stay connected and we live in partnership with each other. This is why the gathering of the church is so important. So let me ask you, can you be a follower of Jesus and not be connected to a local church? Yes, you can. Do you know why? Because salvation has nothing to do with whether you attend a church or not. It has everything to do with the grace that God's given us through the faith we have in Jesus Christ. You can be a follower of Christ, but... Can you be healthy, fully healthy and complete and function the way God has called you without being part of your local church or a body? No, you cannot. I do not believe that that's possible because you're missing something that God has intended you to be a part of. One part alone is not enough. It's not how we're created to be and we've been created as many parts but one body. 
Just this past week, I went to a lab, or the other week, we went to a lab, and they had to get some blood work done. And I was reminded of the fact, when you go to a laboratory for some blood work, you sit down in a little chair, right? And they take out all their little vials, and before they do anything else, they wipe your arm down, and then they put this little stretchy band on your arm, right? You know what I'm talking about, you guys? You know what that's called? It's called a tourniquet, right? It's a tourniquet. Now, it's not the kind of tourniquet you put on if your arm is amputated, but the point of the tourniquet is to constrict the blood flow Okay, to that area of your body so that it creates visibility, greater visibility and pressure around where the, where the veins are. Okay, People that are queasy might be like, I don't want to hear about this. Right? So, so this is what happens. So they insert the needle into where they find the vein, and then they pull the tourniquet off, and then everything just starts coming, and they take all the blood out. But here's something that's important for you to know. When the tourniquet stays on too long, and it's constricting your blood flow, the limb that is affected by that, it becomes noticeable. Okay, maybe you don't have that experience because you don't go and you don't ask them to keep that on for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. That would be a bad idea. But maybe you've woken up in the middle of the night and your leg has fallen asleep. Or you're sitting on a couch watching a TV show and you get up and, you know, what do they call this as a kid? Pins and needles? You ever have that little pins and needles in like your leg? You can barely walk on it anymore because the circulation in your leg has been restricted. And when I'm sharing this with you and why I'm sharing with this with you this morning is because when we don't practice the biblical model of fellowship, we are constricting what God has encouraged us and expected us to do. That part of the body begins to lose its life. When it's out there on its own and it's not unified and it's doing its own thing, when that part is no longer being connected, it begins to lose its life. We need to practice fellowship. We need to walk in unity with each other and we need to make sure when this is happening, This isn't just the people that are on the outside, that the people that are actually gathering are looking to gather those on the outside. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're not going to turn there right now, but in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's talking about communion, which we're going to take in a few moments, and he talks about communion and why communion is so important for us, he rebukes the people of the church that come together with their own food, having their own meals while their brothers and sisters are hungry next to them. And he said, this is not the Lord's Supper. This is not communion. What is he saying? He said, just because you have what you have is not enough. When you come together under one roof and you're gathering as the church body, everybody needs to function as the body, which means you don't go ahead in your own way without making sure your brother and your sister can walk with you. That there is a need for us to keep our eyes open and prefer others above ourselves. And we can't underestimate the need to prefer others. The third thing we need to look at for seeing the church with 2020 vision is the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now, this is a biblical way of saying food, eating together. You break bread, you know, you have a meal together, and it's a very spiritual thing. On the surface, we see that as simply eating together, and it is. That's what the early church did. They ate meals together. Something very relational about having meals together. And I understand that today. I've done pastoral references for people over the years. And I find it's interesting that some of the questions I've received from people regarding a reference on someone are questions like, have you ever been over to their house? That's a great question. When you do a reference for someone and you've never been at their house, it gives the person a good example or an idea of how well you may know them. Have you ever had a meal with that person? I've answered questions like that. I think it's actually pretty significant because what they're talking to or what they're getting at is the intimacy that comes by breaking bread with each other. But breaking bread or eating together is one of the implications, but it's not all of the implication. I want to stretch that out a little bit to say when you break bread together, what it's saying is that everyone has what they need. Everyone has what they need. If you sit at the table with somebody and there's two of you at the table and there's only one piece of meat at the table, you'd be really inconsiderate to eat that piece of meat. All to your, keep it all to yourself, right? You, you shouldn't do that, right? Unless the person says, I'm a vegetarian. You, know? <laughs> you shouldn't do that. When you go somewhere, what do we do? When you go somewhere, and you teach your kids this when they're little, right? If you're going somewhere, and there's a group of people together, and there's all these big bowls of salad and vegetables and all that, what do you teach people when they go through? Take enough that you have for yourself, but make sure you leave enough for everybody else, right? Don't you teach your kids that? You should if you don't, 
you know, because I know some people who've gone places and they're, they're just scooping like, you know, dump trucks onto their plate. And there's like 10 people behind them. And I'm like, that's not going to work. So the people right after them, they take like tiny little bits. Why? Because they want to make sure everyone has something. Breaking bread is much more than just eating. It's a mindset shift that says the body, everyone around you has what they need. Everyone has what they need. When a part of the body has a need, the entire body should respond. In chapter 2, verses 44 through 47, look how Luke talks about this. What does it look like when they broke bread? When everyone had a need and the needs were all met. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In verse 46, every day, They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their daily number, to their number daily, those who were being saved. When you're really, when you're really a part of the church, you know what you know what the needs are. Can I just say that? When you're part of the body, you know what the needs are. When my leg hurts and it's connected to my body, my body knows that my leg hurts. If you're not connected to the body, you do not know what the needs are. I've had people come to me over the years at different times, and this is not a bad thing. Let me say this first. But people come sometimes and they say, hey, if you're aware of any needs in the church, Pastor Paul, let me know because I'd love to be able to help. And that's a wonderful thing that people are willing to do that because God has done many things through people in that way. But can I tell you, that request can never replace God speaking to you and to me about looking for the needs. Sometimes people ask that question and it absolves them of doing anything beyond that because it's my responsibility to tell them what the needs are. And sometimes God's doing that. I'm aware of a need and I'm like, I'm so glad you asked that. Please go help them and God just opens doors and great things happen. But can I tell you, if the same spirit that lives in me lives in you, if God is building the church in me like he wants to build the church in you, you don't need to just come to a minister or a leader and say if there's any needs. Sometimes he puts it on your heart to do something of a significant way and you don't know what to do with it. But every day you can go through your days and say, Lord, where are the needs in this body? Show me, and I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will speak to you. I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will use you and say, you really want to be used? You want to know where the needs are? You're thinking that way? Let me show you where the needs are. And now it's not just everyone coming through the leaders to do that. God has called all of us to be a kingdom of priests. That he says, Spirit of God, if you're really working in me and through me, show me where the needs are, and I will bless people, and I will be there with people. I will help And I will meet needs because the needs have to be met. It might be practical. It may be financial. It may be friendship. It may be mentoring, that you have time to mentor someone. It may be auto repair or encouragement, teaching the word of God or just being present with someone. If the need is there and your heart is open, God will speak to you. That's what breaking of bread really looks like. Now let me say this. This is not an endorsement for socialism when you hear that the scripture says everyone had what they need and everything was the same. People grab this stuff in scripture and they're like, that's why we need to have a socialist pastor or socialist president. Socialism is not a biblical model, okay? Neither is capitalism, by the way. There's elements of both of them that are biblical about working for what you have. That's biblical, okay? You don't work, you don't eat. That's what Solomon said. Work, do some work, earn, earn a living. Socialism is not biblical either, but what is biblical, and here's why it's not biblical, by the way, because what it assumes is that someone takes what you have and they do the one distributing to everyone so everyone has exactly the same. That's not biblical. What God's message is, is that the believers have an obligation and a responsibility to recognize what they have and that God, through his spirit, shows them how to help others who are in need. So it's not then you abdicating your responsibility to the government. It's the church being obedient to God's leading. That's a difference. What does that mean? It means if you have very, very little, God might say, I don't have a whole lot. Lord, I don't have a whole lot to give. Well, you give time, you give this. Someone else might have buku dollars. And it's not the government's responsibility to say, we're going to take all of your money and give it to somebody else. No, God's saying to those believers, I've given you all of that resource because you have a responsibility to be my light with the resources. So you don't just hold on to it and say, but the government's not taking my money. Well, they shouldn't take their money. I'm going to agree with you. Government doesn't need any of my money. Shame on them for taking more and more and more of it. But you know what? Shame on the church. Shame on the church where God has empowered us and given us giftings and resources above what we could ever hope for, ask for, and imagine, and hold on to it so that the government wants to take it to help other people. Listen, 
There are three times the amount of churches in this country than there are orphans. Why? Why are there orphans in our country? There are three, that means if one out of every three churches in this country adopted a kid that was an orphan in our country, there would be no orphans in our countries. Why is that? You know why? I think because in some ways, I've heard people say this as we're walking into this politically charged season. The church is abdicating their responsibility. We're banking what we have. We're holding on to what we have. We're talking about who's going to save us. No one's going to save us. They're not going to save us. Some are better than others. I'm not going to, we'll go there in a couple weeks. Some are better than others. But that is not the point of the Christian church. The point of the church is to see, God, what have you given me? How have you called me to be a light? And where are we going to go with this? So that we can make a difference in the world around us. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's not about our obligation, my friends. It's about trusting God and letting him use us the way he wants to use us. Where everyone has what they need and everyone can bring something different to the table, but it's not out of obligation. It's not out of regulation. It's about the transformation the Spirit's been doing in our hearts. You guys with me this morning? It's a lot of stuff. I know it's a lot of stuff, but this is so important. What would it look like if the church did this? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The last thing, what the church needs to look like with 2020 vision, what the church should look like is prayer. The church should look like prayer. And I'm going to touch on this just briefly, and I want you to hear. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church, when the Holy Spirit arrived, what were they doing? They're praying. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter was thrown into prison by King Herod, the church prayed. In fact, Peter was led out of the prison, the scripture says, brought to Mary's door, okay, the mother of John Mark, knocked on the door. The servant came to the door and said, I think that's Peter's voice, ran back in and told everyone it was Peter, and they're like, you're out of your mind. It's in Acts chapter 12. Look it up. It's right there. They were praying, and Peter was released. Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Paul told us to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And James said the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. If we are going to be the kind of church that God died for, we need to be people of prayer. Not just individually, but corporately together. So what does this mean for us today? There's four things I need to talk to you about briefly this morning, and I want you to hold on to your seats for this. Because some of the things I'm going to say you're going to like, and some of the things I'm going to say you're not going to like. And that's okay. I'm just going to try to tell you that we're being as true that we can to what we see for this word. What does it look like for the church today, Bridge Community Church, to be people that are devoted to teaching? What it means is that starting in October, we're changing some of the series work that we're doing. And starting in October, we are starting an expository teaching through the entire book of Romans. And we're going to begin the first week of October, and we're breaking out as many passages through Romans as we can. And we're going to challenge people from our 7th grade students, CSM, our 7th grade students all the way through adults, are going to do the exact same thing. And they're going to have discussions and they're going to have comments and questions. We're encouraging our community groups that are going to be meeting to follow this with us. Why? Because we need to be one body right now. There are seasons that we don't need to do this. And if you know the history of our church, you know many times we don't do all the same thing. But for this season right now, we have to be one body. And we're going to go through Romans. Why? Because Romans is the rooted scripture. Romans is the passage. There are 10 different powerful theological truths that the Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament, six of them are in the book of Romans. We need to understand what it means to be rooted in our faith in a time of uncertainty in the world that we live in right now. So we're going to do this this expository teaching. We're going to go chapter by chapter through, and it's not a chapter a week. We're going to break it out multiple times, and I want to encourage you to get into your Bibles. Here's what I can promise you. The whole reason the Protestant denominations are here is because Martin Luther read the book of Romans. He was part of the Catholic Church, He read the book of Romans and he saw what it meant to be saved by grace and his mindset shifted. And he didn't want to walk away from the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. But it started an entire new denomination and that's where Protestantism came from because they were protesting the message of the Catholic Church. So we're going to read the foundations so that all of us have the same understanding of what that means and I think it will build the spirit of unity. That's what teaching will look like beginning in October. And like I said, our CSM students on Wednesday nights are going to be doing the same thing just with a little bit of a creative flair to it to build conversation and opportunity to ask a lot of questions. The second thing that we're going to do is we're going to be devoting ourselves to fellowship. We're going to devote ourselves to fellowship. What does it mean? Communion with each other is going to be our priority. And what I mean by that is not just the people that are here in this building. 
If you know anything about Bridge, you know that we've been a two-service church for many years. We've been one service now for much time, for a long time, and we've been reduced capacity in the one service. Less than a quarter of the number of people that actually call Bridge home have come to Bridge because of the limitations that we have. So we're making some changes. You heard the announcement that we're expanding back to our two-service environment back in October. We're starting in October, going back to two services, but we're making another shift as well. And this is where some of you may like this and some of you may not, but we're changing our guidelines with what we do with face coverings in our church. Right now, our guidelines in the church have been that they are not required, but they are encouraged. And what we're doing effective next week is we're changing our face covering policies so that they're required from the time you check in to the time you come to your seat and to the time you sit down before the message begins. And when the message is over, we're asking people to put their face coverings back on and leave the building. Now, I can tell you right now that people are not going to all like that. And I can tell you from my own personal journey, I don't like it. In fact, when this first started, this whole journey first started, I complained about it to God more than I could probably imagine (laughs) that I could communicate to you. When this whole thing first started, I just said, Lord, the idea of coming back together as a church, the idea of coming together and wearing face covers and doing that, what message does this send to the church? What message does this send to God? What message does it say to the community? Are we walking in fear? Are we obeying the government? Are we bowing to the government? What does that mean? I don't feel comfortable doing that. And over this time, as we've been walking this journey, very clearly I feel like that God has been challenging me about identifying and defining what real fellowship is. And there's an opportunity he's placing in our hands right now to say as a church, don't make it about your preference. Make it about the partnership of the believers. Because here's what I know. I know though we have an optional policy And we encourage people to wear coverings. Most of the people that come to the church right now don't. And here's what I also know. That there are a lot of people that want to come back to Bridge that don't feel comfortable coming because most of us don't. So in this process, I have recognized that there's two perspectives we can look at. We can say, when you feel comfortable enough being like me, you're welcome to come back. That's one way of looking at it, right? Or we can say, I don't want to do this. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes me feel like all of these things that I can't communicate, but it's more important to me that you and I stay part of the relationship and the relationship stays intact than this dumb little thing that I have to wear for a period of time. This matters more to me than not having a mask. Because here's what I know outside of the church today Businesses require face coverings. And you know what's happening in businesses, guys? Jobs are being done. Goals are being hit. Profit is being made. Why? Because they forget the fact that this, they don't don't care that this matters anymore. What they recognize is that there's a bigger mission and there's a bigger purpose. And they say, I will forego that freedom. Most of the time people forego it because if they don't, they don't get paid. That's the motivation behind a lot of it. If you say no, you can say, fine, you don't have to do it, but you're not going to get paid. But in the church, we can choose to or not choose to. We can stand up and declare our civil rights. We can declare what it means to walk in our freedoms. And I can tell you, the scriptures that I read are all about foregoing our freedoms for the sake of the body. This is so important for you to hear this morning. Because you're going to stand here next week if you come back. And we're going to ask people when they walk through the doors that you're wearing a face covering. What does it mean? It means you don't have to wear a mask if you don't want to wear a little mask. I mean, I don't like these anyway. They feel very very uh, sterile. You know, you don't have to wear that. Maybe, maybe you wear like a little neck gaiter like I have, and you can put one of these things on, and then you know, can go rob a bank afterwards. You, know, you can do that if you want to. If you don't want to do that, we're going to give people these little face shields that they could wear on the front if you want to, and they're disposable and throwaways for people that have trouble, and they sit out here, and they're a little clear so you can see people's face. Our kids in the back, they're going to have these, these, fun, fun little, these fun little animal masks you know, little face coverings that they can walk around and they can do that. And you might be sitting here and it might be rubbing you the wrong way saying, you're buying into the message of fear, Pastor Paul. You're buying into fear. Can I tell you, this is not about fear. It's not about government control. It's about preferring others over our own freedoms. And I do not want to see other brothers and sisters that are connected to Bridge no longer able to come to Bridge because they cannot, for whatever reason, they're either uncomfortable, they've been listening to the wrong message, maybe they have a medical condition that they can't unless people are willing to take this step. There's different reasons why people can't come. I will not be able to stand here in good conscience anymore and say, when you guys come to where we are, then you can fellowship with us again. We need to make a shift. And you need to hear my heart on this, that people are going to disagree with it, 
and they're going to say, I'm, I'm teaching my family that we should fear the government and we should fear this virus. I believe that it's politically charged. I believe that it's not as accurate as people are saying, but I also know that it's real and I've had family members that have died from it. What I'm telling you this morning is that you have an opportunity. You can either promote fear with the people that you have responsibility over or you can show them this is an opportunity for you not to make this about yourself. When God talks to me about it, he says, Paul, stop making it about you and use it as an opportunity to make it about others. What are we going to do on Wednesday nights for our CSM? We're going to do the same thing, but not exactly the same. There will be periods of time for our students on Wednesday nights that we will encourage them and ask, not encourage, ask them to wear some type of face covering. Why? So that anyone that feels uncomfortable has the opportunity to come, but the bigger message behind that is we prefer others above ourselves. And we want the church to be unified in a time where this this culture is promoting disunity. And if you have other questions about it, which I'm sure many of you do, come and talk to me about it. Oh, the next thing that we're going to talk about today, briefly, is the breaking of bread. Remember, breaking of bread, and this is going much longer than I thought it was, and I'm so sorry this morning, but I need to finish this up. The breaking of bread implies that everyone has what they need. Everyone has what they need. When a part of the body has a need, the entire body responds. Everyone has a need, and the entire body responds. So what does that look like for us today? Well, we recognize that going back to school has been a very difficult thing for people right now. That there are parents that can't always bring their kids to school. That there are parents that want to have a place for their kids to go, but how do they work a full-time job and also care for their, their, their students? So we're trying something, we're doing something starting next week called the Bridge Study Hall. And what the Bridge Study Hall is going to look like is on Mondays, we're going to have a window of time for elementary kids And on Thursdays, we're going to have a window of time for junior and senior high kids. And they're going to create a study hall place here that's manned by adults with background checks and everything like that. And they're going to allow their kids. We're going to encourage people if they want to bring their kids in a socially distant setup where they can come and their kids can be here. And they can get minimal assistance, but it's really kind of a self-study kind of a thing. Our children's pastors talked about it. Pastor Matt's been talking about it. That there is a need across our church that people are saying, hey, this really could be helpful not just for us, but for the kids in our neighborhood or whatever. Can we have a place where they can come and they can gather just to give moms and dads a breather for a part of a day during the week? So we're going to try it, and we're going to see if that works by doing that. You'll hear more information about that in this coming week, where if you have an elementary-age kid on Mondays, you'll be able to come for a period of time, or a junior high and senior high, you can drop them for a number of hours, and they can come and study, and then parents can continue to do what they're going to do. It's just a way of us saying, Listen, none of us really have this issue right now, but we know that other people do, and when one area of the church has a need, we want to try to help meet it. So that's what we're trying to do, and you'll hear more about that this week. And the last area that we're going to talk about is being devoted to prayer, and that means we're going to return prayer meetings here at Bridge. A number of years ago, you've known for many years, we had prayer meetings on a weekly basis or every other week, and we've walked away from that for a period of time for different reasons and different seasons. But I can't think of any better time right now in the history of our country that we need to begin and restart We're prayer meetings in our team. Separate us. Silly things like this means nothing because when we come together and we pray, God works and we don't. What does it mean when we pray as a church? Someone told me a long time ago, when I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. And right now, we need God to work, church. We don't need us to work. We need us to find time to do that. So during the week, we're going to start next week, and you'll hear information coming up one night a week that we're going to start having an opportunity for people to come. We're not going to do worship. We're not going to do this big scripted thing. We're coming together, and we're saying, would you come? Would you spend some time spread out, and would you just pray together for a couple of specific things so that the church is praying in a spirit of unity as a body? And we're going to do that, especially as we come into this climate and this season right now. Our nation is getting ripped apart up and down. There is not just a physical thing that's going on. There's a spiritual divide that's happening across our country and across our world, and the church needs to be on the forefront of this, seeking God to move, not ourselves. We need God to move in this world, not us to move. So the prayer meetings are going to return next week, and you'll start to hear information on that as well. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and like I said, I know that we've We've gone along much, much overboard this week in terms of um, our time, and we've gone over time quite a bit. But I would be remiss to not end a message like this in the way that we talked about in the beginning. That if we're going to talk about unity as a church, if we're going to talk about the body being the body, that we need to take a moment and thank God for giving his body so that we can be one. 
And if you have your communion cup with you this morning, I'm going to invite you just to open this up. If you would, please take the little bread out and you could open up this little cup here and wedge this little, open this up a little bit. going to take a few moments. I know I used a lot of words and I talked for a long time this morning. And I'll be honest, I had a hard time thinking how I would be able to put this together in one day. I promise you next week won't be as long. Especially our people that are watching online. Yes, you can use the bathroom. Come on back for communion. If you don't have one of these cups, get get a cup of water. If you don't have any bread, grab a cracker. If you have nothing, God's okay with that. Take a moment, bow your head, please. And let's take a moment and reflect on something that should transform our lives, which is the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who willingly, the Apostle Paul says, if we're looking for an example of someone who preferred others more than himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, our attitude should be like Jesus who did not equate equality or did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but stripped himself of his divine nature, came to earth as a servant. Jesus Christ laid his, he laid his divinity aside, was born in a manger, which was another way of saying a feeding trough in a cave, became a carpenter, grew in wisdom and stature, as Luke says in Luke 2.52, in favor with God and with men. He grew on this earth like we grow. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted, and yet he did not sin. The Holy Spirit was given to him in a measure that we can never experience. He knew God's will. He prayed in the garden before his arrest. As Pastor Rob said last week, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. He stripped himself of his divinity. His preferences were put to the side so that we could be restored in unity with the Father. Isn't that an incredible message? How much more as the church today should we take our preferences, our opinions, our interests, And though they may be freedoms that we can exercise, if it keeps division within the body and it prevents the body from working and being unified together, they need to come secondary because Jesus gave it all so that we could be one. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night... He was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we take this bread this morning and we remember the sacrifice of Christ. We remember that you laid down your life so that we could live forever set aside your will Jesus you set aside your desires and you took up the will of the father so that we could be in relationship with him forever we take this bread this morning and we say thank you for your sacrifice let's take the bread and remember God's sacrifice this morning supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me and Lord we take this cup and we remember your shed blood again thankful that it's not the blood of bulls and goats as the writer of Hebrews says that cleanses of our sin but it is the shed blood of a perfect sacrifice Jesus Christ that allows us to no longer walk with condemnation but to walk with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you and you alone. 
Let's take the cup this morning and remember the sacrifice of Christ. Paul continues to write in verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remember the story is not over, my friends. That Jesus is returning. And the scriptures say, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? When he returns, can I ask you, will he find unity in his church? When he comes, will he find people that he died for that are affiliating themselves more with political parties than they are with the kingdom of heaven? It's okay to be passionate about things that you're passionate about as long as we are first citizens of heaven. When he comes, will he see the church being the church, meeting the needs, fellowshipping as one body, filling the gaps and being the gifts and the hands and the feet of Jesus? Will the world see the church the way the church is supposed to look? Because the best way the church, the world's ever going to see Jesus is through looking at the church. When he comes, what is he going to find? I believe he wants to see unity. I believe he's looking for a pure church. And he's looking for a church that is willing to lay down their lives for each other because he laid his life down for us. Would you take a moment and stand with me? I asked the team if they would sing this song. and I'm going to close in prayer as the team begins to sing this song. And, and you're free if you would like to go while the song is singing or if you would like to stay. But can I just encourage you? The song is called Come Like the Dawn. And the words are very simple. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. You are welcome here, holy God. One of the verses say, make your presence known. Another one says, let your glory fall. Can I tell you, it's a prayer from our heart that we pray to God saying, your Holy Spirit is not welcome in a building. Your Holy Spirit is welcome in our heart. So change us so that we can be the hands and feet of Christ. Father, as we worship you this morning, may our brothers and our sisters make a declaration today to know you, to love you, and to invite you to continue to change them.